for you guys, and thank you for opening up the pulpit today uh, for me to share. So, uh, Linda and I started Youth with a Mission in Denver, Colorado, in 1984, 25 years approximately into our time there. Uh, we went through something I would not wish on anyone. Uh, we had a former student who was backslidden, uh, angry at God for a number of reasons and really bitter. And there was a situation that happened in a church in Colorado Springs that kind of pushed him over the edge. And he decided uh, he was going to commit a massacre. Uh, before he went to this church in Colorado Springs, he came to our youth with a mission base the night, night before. Our hospitality coordinator did not let him come and stay for the night. That, that's what he wanted. He had 2,000 rounds of ammunition, several automatic rifles and different handguns. But he just had on him a nine millimeter pistol and he pulled it out and he shot Tiffany, shot her boyfriend, shot two others. Tiffany and one of the guys died that night. Uh, it was just a very traumatic situation. The next day he went to that church in Colorado Springs, repeated the same thing and was shot and killed by a security officer. But how could something like that happen in a Christian ministry? Um, and why would God let it happen? You know, why? Why God? Why didn't you intervene? It was a snowy night, you know, there was about six inches of snow on the ground. Why didn't you make his car slide off the road or something? Why? I found, Linda and I found as we travel around the world and our main audience uh, is 18 to 25 year olds that we train and, and minister to. That's the main question that people have. It's the main one. And, and many who've grown up in the church have even turned away from God because they have no answer to, the, to why do innocent people suffer in the world God created. Um, in their minds, if God was truly just, uh, then there would be fairness in the world. Bad things would only happen to bad people. Uh, if God is love, as the Bible claims, why then uh, is there suffering in the world that he created? And so uh, it led me to write this book uh, called When the Shooting Stopped. Uh, and I don't know about you, but sometimes you, you start going down a pathway and the Holy Spirit taps you on the shoulder. I mean, not literally, but you just have this intuitive perception. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And I felt him say, no, 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 I, I don't want you just to tell the story because the story is amazing because actually we saw thousands of people come to the Lord as a result and recommit their lives to the Lord as a result of what happened. And I was just gonna tell that story and I felt like the Lord say, no, I want you to talk about where am I from a biblical standpoint? Where am I when there's suffering? And so it's called, where is God when we suffer? And I, I narrowed it down. It took me two years to write because... I looked at all the different sources of suffering and I narrowed it down to 10 sources of suffering. And what do the scriptures say about it? Because the Bible, right? We wanna, we wanna have a biblical Christian worldview. And that means we look at everything that happens through the lens of scripture. And, and there are many things, answers for all these things in God's word. And so I've approached everything through God's word. And this morning, then I'm gonna talk to you about one of these sources of suffering 
A year ago, I talked about one of the other sources of suffering. I wanna talk to you about one of them. It's chapter seven in my book. Uh, I wanna talk to you about it because of its relevance to the day in which we're living and specifically to this series you've been going through, okay? So you ready to go for it? We're gonna go from one thing to the next without using the clutch. <laughs> Hopefully the ride won't be too bumpy. Uh, and, and so the title of the message this morning is The Battle Behind the Battle. Who told you that the things we see are the ultimate measure of truth? Who told you that? That, that, that the things we hear on the news, the things that we, we read about and the things that we perceive because of these physical eyes, who told you that's the ultimate reality? I wanna to suggest to you that the reality that the predominantly materialistic world around us believes in is not the ultimate reality. There's more going on, but most of it is invisible. Most of it is taking place around us and in the physical, in, in the spiritual realm. The Bible describes this cosmic battle that is taking place. It's a battle for the minds and hearts of men, women, and children. It's a battle for cities. It's a battle for whole nations. And ultimately, this, this is the battle. The battle is for the right to rule this world. Ephesians 6.12 tells us, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood enemies, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. That word age in Greek is the word eon, E-O-N. It describes a season of time, a period of time, the darkness of this age. There are periods of time when Satan is empowered, when demonic spirits are empowered, usually predicated by the evil acts of human beings that give them authority. For example, I didn't grow up with Halloween, but around Halloween in this nation, there's an increase in evil, not only in the things people watch and feed into their minds, but it actually then creates a spirit that you can feel especially if you're a perceptive person, you can feel the presence of the enemy. There are places you travel on the earth and you can feel the presence of the enemy driving into cities, okay? If you have a discernment gift, you'll be able to sense, well, sometimes it comes through temptation. You think there's something wrong with you, but it's not. It's actually, you've come under the canopy of this area where evil has been done and it's actually empowered Satan, okay? It's not always that way and sometimes then God's Spirit comes in and we call that revival. And revival, by the way, is very geographical. We call it by geogra geographical names like the Welsh Revival or the Azusa Street Revival, you know, where it actually affects cities and nations. And Satan mobilizes his forces primarily according to groupings of people and a map of the world. So we'll talk about this a little bit more. So, so Ephesians 6.12 then says, and we're fighting against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. This is not heaven, okay? Heaven, the third heaven is where God is. The second heaven is the universe. 
the, the first heaven is the sky. That's the word here. Up there in the heavenly places, there's this battle going on. But the world, if you, if you believe in this, the world thinks you're a little cuckoo. You know? You're a little crazy here to think that this is really what's going on. No, no, this is the explanation the Bible puts forth. Not the normal explanation that the world wants us to believe, but the explanation of the Bible. It's not physical. It cannot be one with physical weaponry. 2 Corinthians 10.4 tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not, the word there is sarkikos, carnal. They're not physical. They're not tangible. You can't touch and see them, but they are powerful in God to pull down strongholds. What's a stronghold? It's an area where Satan has dominion. He is actually referred to as the strong man. And they're called strongholds, not weak holds, because they are strong. Now, just remember, as we talk about this, greater is the one who is in you than the one who's in the world. That's the reality. But there is a battle. And it's not just a matter of going in and saying, Satan be gone. It doesn't happen that way. I mean, that's part of it with our words, but there's a lot more to it than that. This is what is going on. And it's going on in this nation right now. And it's going on in different parts of the world where Satan is seeking to take control. Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age. These principalities, although they're spiritual beings, they seek, they seek to carry out their power by infiltrating human authority systems. Like government and the media and education and arts and entertainment. He wants to control those and the family and the church even. That's what he wants to do. That's his ultimate goal in then taking control of a whole civilization, a whole society is by taking control of the spheres that make up a society. Government, the church, the family, education, arts and entertainment, the media, that's what he wants to use. Business, that's what makes up a society. But in their essence, they're spiritual beings and the battle is a spiritual battle. So how, how, how did the battle begin? What do we know from Scripture? Looking at this through the lens of Scripture. And so we got to kind of piece some pieces together to kind of come up with a narrative here that makes sense. Because uh, there's a lot of things God's left out, but there is enough in His Word to make it clear that this is the reality around us. And so for context, let's go back as far as we possibly can. When did the battle start? Well, let's start with this premise. God created everything. Do you believe that? Do you believe God created everything there is? Again, the world out there says, no, 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 no. He couldn't have created everything. There are other things that have come to pass that God didn't create. I mean, for one, according to biblical chronology, the human race has only been around for 6,000 years. Clearly, the planet is a lot older than that. Well, maybe there are things God left out. I mean, He didn't tell us everything, right? I mean, if God told us everything, the Bible would be 500 times the size it is. God has a hard enough time getting you guys to read one that big. And me too. Okay, so there are things He left out. Or maybe, maybe, maybe 
He created the planet already old. Well, that's a crazy thought. I mean, how could he create it with history? Well, he's done it before. For example, how old was Adam when he was one day old? He wasn't a baby. He was a fully grown man in the prime of life, right? Somewhere in his 50, uh, 20s. <laughs> or think about Jesus' first miracle in Cana of Galilee. He turned the water into wine. That wine had no time to ferment or mature, but according to the wedding guests, it was the best wine of the evening. Right there, in that uh, one second after Jesus turned it into wine, it was wine. He made it already that way. I have to tell you a joke I told in the first service. I can't leave you guys out. Okay, there's a priest driving down the road. He's not staying in his lane. And so the, uh, the highway patrol sees this and the police officer flips on his light, pulls the priest over to the side of the road, comes up to the driver's side window and says, um, um, driver's license and register. And then he notices it's a priest. And he, then, then he can smell what seems like alcohol. And he, and he's, he says, uh, excuse me, Father, but have you been drinking? And the priest says, no. And, and the policeman says, what, what's in that container that you have right there? And the priest uh, says, well, it's just water. And he says, give me that container. He takes it and he pours it out and it's red wine. And he looks at the priest and the priest says, praise Jesus, he did it again. <laughs> um, uh, well, God created everything. I think there are things he's left mysterious because he wants us to trust him and not have to filter everything through our brain. I mean, the current universe is 90 billion light years across, okay? Traveling at 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 90 billion years to get across the, the known universe today. And as men invent bigger telescopes, I think God just creates a little bit more universe. He doesn't want us to try and figure everything out, but you know what? He created everything. That's our faith. That's what we believe. That's what the Scriptures tell us. That's the foundation on which we stand. Because if you don't stand on the foundation of God's truth, everything is sinking sands, right? Everything is relative. What can you trust in? Eventually it leads to insecurity. But praise God, we believe you, Lord. You created everything. Your Word says that. So Colossians 1.16, we're told that for by Him, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth. And, and then two categories of God's creation, visible and invisible. So we know about the things we can see, like people and mountains and trees and, and stars. But what about, what's the invisible part? Well, the Apostle Paul goes on to tell us that uh, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, these are all these they have different names because they're different types of spiritual beings that look different from one another, that have different assignments from God. I mean, the one, one of the beings that Isaiah saw had six wings and the one John saw had four wings. Did John just miss a couple of the wings? No, they're probably different beings, okay? And, and so just think about the creativity of God. And they're all around us, by the way, these invisible beings. Most of the time they're invisible. Sometimes they become visible. 
Okay, we know that there are at least 100 million angels because we're told in Scripture that the number of the angels is 10,000 times 10,000. That's 100 million. Okay, David said, Psalm 34, 7, I, I didn't put this Scripture up, but the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Oh, what a great Scripture that is. Okay, you have angels assigned to you to minister to you, to protect you, to guard you. Okay, they're all around us. And here's the thing. God created all these invisible beings, angelic beings, which are called thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. They weren't bad guys to start with because they were created through Him and for Him. That was the original intent. God created them to help Him govern His universe. I don't know for what other reasons, but they exist, okay? Now, the world at this point is going, man, you guys are totally nuts. This is not true because they just believe in the tangible things. No, there's more to it. And the things that we see played out in the natural often are predicated by these battles won or lost in the heavenlies. I want to tell you, that's the way it really is. So one of the beings God created was this beautiful cherub. His name was Shining One. We're most familiar with his name in Latin, which is Lucifer. He is also referred to as a morning star. Not the bright morning star, which is Jesus, but a morning star that had a level of brilliance and beauty. And his, the name Lucifer means Shining One. As we look through Scripture, we see that He shows up in different forms and at different times. There are two prophets in the Old Testament who came face to face with Lucifer and his work. But at first, they didn't realize it was him because he looked like a man. And so there was a case of mistaken identity. One of them was Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 28, he begins to prophesy against this earthly king called the king of Tyre. And then very quickly he realizes, wait a minute, this is not the king of Tyre. This is either Satan impersonating the king because they can take on human form, right? Remember the guys that showed up at Abraham's house? One was actually God, the other two were angels. Okay, they look like men. We've been told that some of us have shown hospitality to angels and we didn't know it. If a guy walked through the door who was seven foot tall and had wings, you'd probably figure out he might be an angel. If you entertained angels and didn't know it, they looked like human beings. And so here, many scholars believe Ezekiel began speaking against the king of Tyre and then went, wait a minute, this is Lucifer. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty. You were in the Garden of Eden. Well, the king of Tyre wasn't in the Garden of Eden. And he goes on to describe this being God created, very beautiful, very powerful, a brilliant, who then turned to the dark side, okay, to use a Star Wars term, okay. Um, so he went he went to the other side and he became, it says, violent and proud. And he, this was his big, his big transgression. Isaiah, or Isaiah, if you're American, um, 
Isaiah the prophet had a similar vision of the king of Babylon and he actually called him Lucifer. And then he said this, Isaiah 14, 14. This is what he wanted. He wanted to be God. That's his ultimate desire is to be like the Most High. How could this finite created being think that he could be like God? What a crazy thing. Why would he think that? Well, pride is such a deceiver that those who begin to believe the lies about who they are, those self-engrandizing beliefs that they're greater than who they really are, go down that roadway where they actually believe it, that they can pull it off. I think he thought he could be God. And so what he did is he launched an attack to overthrow God's kingdom. We read about this in the book of Revelation. Much of Revelation relates to the future and some of it possibly in the present of what we're encountering now and in the coming years. But some of it is a flashback to the past. Bible scholars believe that this passage in Revelation relates to something. It was, it was a recollection of something that had happened many years before. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. And it says, and war broke out in heaven. I mean, can you, can you picture what the Bible is saying here? War broke out in heaven. I mean, this was the first Star Wars, by the way. <laughs> I hope God has it recorded so we can chill back and watch it one day. Um, but here, this angelic being called Lucifer, he, he, he disguises himself. He takes on disguises because he's a deceiver. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the God of this world, the God of this age. He, I think the scariest of all his, his, his um, what's the term for a camouflage or a disguise? The scariest of his disguises is the Bible says he comes as an angel of light. He pretends to be believable and trustworthy and a keeper of the truth when Jesus said he's been a murderer from the start. So here he comes in Revelation as a dragon. He's a dragon with several heads and, and horns, and he, he tries to overthrow God's kingdom. This is not the final battle. The final battle is actually Jesus, not Michael. Michael's one of the other good angels, archangels. But Jesus coming back with the name faithful and true on his thigh and casting Satan into the lake of fire once and for all. But that time is not yet. This is reflecting a battle that had taken place long before. And, but he couldn't overthrow God's throne. I mean, what was he thinking? And he was sent to the earth. How many of you know you're on earth right now? Okay. <laughs> this is where he is living. Jesus Remembering this event said in Luke 10, verse one, I saw Satan fall from the sky like lightning. Well, Satan's ultimate goal is world domination. That's what he wants. Let's just say it for what it is. He wants to rule this world. He already has his foot in the door because of sin. When Adam and Eve sin, sinned, it gave him an authority on this planet. Uh, Luke, in Luke chapter four, he, Jesus is on, come to the earth. He is 
then take it into the wilderness after his baptism. And guess who shows up? Satan shows up and he tries to trick Jesus. His deception, you'll know it because it's, it's never just lies because we can figure out when someone's lying, it's truth mixed with lies. In fact, he even used scripture out of context to try and trip Jesus up. But every time he said something that wasn't 100% right, true, right, Jesus said, no, 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 it is written. And Jesus spoke the truth of what God had said. Except in the middle of this, Satan takes him on a high mountain, shows him, this is important, all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he says, if you bow down and worship me, I'm gonna give all this to you, Jesus, because this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. You're waiting for Jesus to say, that is a lie from the pit of hell. This does not belong to you. Jesus does not refute that statement. Who gave this to him? Who gave him the kingdoms of the world? We did. Through our sin, we empowered him. Now, we have to realize Satan is not infinite. The word infinite means unlimited. Something that's finite is limited. Something infinite is unlimited. God is infinite. Satan is not. He's a finite created being. In the first chapter of Job, we see clearly how he is not unlimited. God's infinite nature is in that God is unlimited in his knowledge. He's unlimited in his power. He's unlimited in his presence. He's everywhere at once. Satan is not. Job 1.7, he's not everywhere at once. The Lord said, where have you come from? Well, from walking throughout the earth. He's not everywhere at once. Now he gets around pretty quickly, <laughs> probably because he has wings, but He's not everywhere at once. He's not the dark side of the force here, okay? He's not like that comes from, from dualism, that God is both good and evil. That's the premise of Star Wars is dualism. No, no, no. Satan is nothing compared to God, the King of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's powerful. He's just not all powerful. He's not everywhere at once. He doesn't know everything. Job 1.8, God said, have you considered my servant Job? No, he hadn't actually considered that until that moment. He doesn't know everything. And then he's not all powerful. In verse 10, he said, but I can't touch Job because you've put a hedge of protection around him. He doesn't have all power. Let's recognize who this being is. He has a lot of mirrors and disguises. And yes, he's powerful, but no, greater is the one. Here's the key, 1 John 4.4. 4. <coughs> Greater is the one who is in you than the one who's in the world. Now, he's more powerful than us, Satan is, but not more than Jesus. The key is that we go in Jesus' name. Many times in the New Testament, when it says go in Jesus' name or in Jesus' name, such and such, it's the word onoma, which is the word for authority. When Peter and John said, we don't have silver and gold, but what we have we'll give to you in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. It's the word in the authority of Jesus. Going in Jesus' name doesn't mean we just tack on His name to what, whatever we wanna do. It means that we're actually representing Him. And that's what Satan hats, hates. And that's when we have authority. Greater is the one in us than the one who is in the world. And I don't wanna ruin it for you. If you're a new Christian, you haven't finished reading through your Bible, but I flipped to the end and we win. 
Just want you to know that, okay? God is gonna win this war. But his strategy, well, his strategy is the craziest strategy you've ever heard of. We'll get to it in a second. If I was God, I wouldn't use, employ this strategy, but this is the strategy he's employed. Um, but before I get there, let me just say this. Satan is empowered by the evil acts of human beings. He's empowered on a regional level through things that people would do. My home country of Australia has a wounded spirit. There's an aggressiveness and an independent spirit and a competitive spirit that's actually come from our roots because my ancestors were all prisoners. <laughs> they were, except for one who they think might have been sm smuggling liquor into Australia. But all of the others were prisoners, okay? Sent from Ireland and England for stealing a chicken or some small thing, sent to Australia. And there's actually, and then on Sundays, they chained them to the pews to listen to a sermon from preachers that were sent from England. And there's this bitterness against England, but against authority and against God that's come from, from our history. I, as I travel around the world, I see when there's a, the presence of evil, if you do research, you can trace it back to a, some things that happened in history of why that exists. So being a missionary, I've gone to many places. I've been to Africa over 30 times and three times to the nation of Sierra Leone. And Sierra Leone, I went there before the Civil War with Charles Taylor and the child soldiers because of the blood diamonds. And then right after, and you can literally feel, or you could at that time, the presence of evil in that nation because of the atrocities that were committed. And then later I went, years later, and it wasn't there anymore. The, the powers of darkness move around to places where they're given authority. It's very, it's, it's, it's based on groups of people and a map of the world. During World War II, Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung wrote about the Nazi Third Reich regime that was involved in the occult and had committed these atrocities. And, and he wrote, Carl Jung, he wrote, a God has taken possession of the Germans. The German people are wonderful people, but you know what? In the 1930s and 1940s, a God took possession of Germany. There were things that were done that empowered him to operate, to be in that place. For the forces of darkness, right now, this nation is front and center, the epicenter of a battle. And, and part of it is, part of it is because this nation is a leader. The rest of the world looks to America as a leader in the world. And when a leader falls, whether it be a pastor or a human leader, any type of leader, there's a ripple effect that impacts many others. And the key, the key for this nation is not the nation, it's the church, which we'll get to in a second. So let me just give you one last scripture because people go, well, how can you say that it's actually geographical? Well, I want you to see the greatest deliverance in the New Testament took place when Jesus and the disciples sailed across the Sea of Galilee and a man came down from the burial tombs in Gadara and he said, Jesus said, what's your name? And the man, the demons spoke through him, legion for we are many. And then, then the demons, the next thing they said was this, they begged Jesus 
not to send them out of the country. The word there is, I wrote it down, the word is Korah, K-H-O-R-A-H in Greek. It means territory, not a country like Wales or Canada, but a territory, a geographical location. They begged him, don't send us out of this area. Why? Why? I asked myself, why would this be so important to them that they wouldn't be sent out of the territory? I want to suggest to you that probably the villages there of the, in the Gennesarenes were their names, who then lost the 2,000 pigs because the demons went into the pigs. They probably had been involved in activities that gave these demonic spirits a an authority, a, a, like a canopy of protection for them to be operating in that place. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us all the reasons, except the demons didn't want to be sent to a different physical location. This battle is geographical and over people groups. Satan mobilizes his forces according to demography and geography, groupings of people and a map of the world. So how, how do we deal with that? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Everyone say, how do we deal with that? Go ahead. Okay, well, this is how. I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you how. God has a strategy to win this battle. Um, it's a strange strategy. He's going to win this war, but how? Well, he's decided that the church would take the lead. Okay, look around the room. God, what were you thinking? <laughs> look up here. God, what were you thinking? He uses the weak and the foolish, right? To confound the wise, we're told. But He's called us as the church to take the lead. Why not angels? I mean, they're more powerful than us. Well, I don't know. You can ask Him when you see Him one day. All I know is this is His strategy, is to use us and the angels are assisting us. We were made lower than the angels. Even Jesus, Hebrews 2.7, it says, when he became a man, was made lower in his physical frame than the angels. But God wants to, Romans 16.20 tells us, he wants to crush Satan underneath our feet. So he's gonna do that through weapons that he's given to us. He doesn't send us out defenseless. No, He gives us not only His Holy Spirit, but He gives us weapons with which we can fight. And for the sake of time, I'm gonna tell you three key weapons that He's given to us. The first one, this one, I love this weapon. I want this so much. It's, it's spiritual night vision goggles, which the Bible doesn't say exactly. Maybe in the message it says that, but uh, it's called discernment. Discernment is seeing things as they really are, not as they appear. Most people just see with these eyes. No, there's something God gives us to see beyond what is visible. It's a prophetic gift. A prophet in the Old Testament, we're told, originally was called a seer. Someone who could see. And that's, that's a gift God gives, like watchmen on the wall who can see. That's, here's the enemy coming, who can warn others. This is what is happening. So here's an example. 2 Kings 6, 15 through 17. Elisha had a servant called Gehazi. 
He saw the enemy coming and he freaked out. And Elisha didn't tell him. Elisha looked and he saw into the spiritual realm and he saw the angelic beings of the Lord there. But he didn't tell him. He said, Lord, open the eyes of the boy. And it says, scales fell off of his eyes and he could see what the prophet was seeing. And, and look at that. Look at it. Don't you love this last part? He opened the eyes of the young man and, be, and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. Wow, all of a sudden he could see what was going on. In Ephesians 6.18, we're told to be alert and watchful. That's this gift. Not just going by what you hear or what you think, but God giving you revelation of what is really going on. It is to be linked specifically with supplication for the saints, with prayer. The second weapon, so that's one of the weapons. The second is unified and persistent prayer. Faith is praying until dot, dot, dot. You keep praying, you pray, you keep on praying until it happens. You don't give up, especially men. Because the truth is women are more spiritual than us by and large. And God, because we wanna fix things right away, right? If you're a woman and you're married to a man, you know he's always trying to fix everything, okay? And, and uh, it's just in our nature. But sometimes it can't be fixed right away. And, and so we, we can't give up. And, and so Luke 18, 1, Jesus said, uh, men ought to pray and not lose heart. Because you can, you can lose heart very quickly because prayers are not, how many of you know this? Prayers are not answered right away. <laughs> that why not? Well, usually because our prayers are aiding the angels and the thing we're praying for, the key is we need to ask God, is this your will? And when it's His will, we pray it and we pray it and we pray it into existence and our prayers are fueling the battle that is going on, that invisible battle we can't see with these human eyes. Here's an example, Daniel chapter 10. In Daniel 10, we find Daniel and the children of Israel have been taken captive to another nation into Persia, to the city of Babylon. This was the superpower of the day, the Babylonian kingdom. And Daniel knew the prophecy that they would be there 70 years. This event in Daniel chapter 10 happened about 68 to 69 years before or in, into their captivity. Daniel knew this, so he began to pray. And he prayed, and he prayed for a week, and nothing, and two weeks, and nothing. 17, 18, 19 days, nothing! Well, he couldn't see it, but something was happening. Finally, on the 21st day, Gabriel arrives on the scene, out of breath. <sighs> Daniel, a little angel blood on his forehead. I might have made that part up. Uh, uh, but, but this is what he said. He said, from the first day you started praying, God heard you and He sent me. Now, don't you think, God hears Daniel's prayers. He sends an archangel to defeat, to liberate them, to defeat the prince of Persia. This wasn't Satan. It was one of his lieutenants. He is withstood by the prince of Persia. 
for three weeks and Michael comes and helps him. And finally, the prince of Persia is defeated and cast out. And then they leave for Greece to fight the prince of Greece. Okay, these are spiritual battles. If you put history on top of the Bible, you see some amazing things. What happened in history at this time of Daniel chapter 10? Within two years of this event, the year was 539 BC, the Neo-Babylonian Empire was overthrown. It collapsed and the new king came in and he said, what are these slaves? And they said, well, they're the slaves of the former king. And, and he said, you know what, let them go home. And that was the end of the diaspora. Wow, incredible. What a coincidence that it happened so quickly. It was no coincidence. It's the, that now Persia was under the control of God's forces, no longer under the control of the Prince of Persia. That's how it happens. These battles won or lost in the heavenlies. Prayer is powerful. Prayer changes things. Whew. So don't stop praying. It's a powerful weapon. I want to give you one last weapon, and that is repentance. I don't know what the future holds, but I know what can impact the outcome of the future, and that's repentance. When we truly, not just confess our sins, but we repent of our evil ways, God steps in. 2 Chronicles 7.14. The question is, how do you get a whole nation to repent? You don't have to. You just have to get the church to repent. If my people, he said, will do these things, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's the word for the physical ground on which you live. I will heal their land if they pray and humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways. And you know what applies to us? Look at the previous verse, 2 Chronicles 7.13. It was in a season of drought and plague. There was a plague in the land and God said, if you repent, I'm gonna bring healing. What power do we have as Christians? We really do, and repentance is one of them. And sometimes we not only repent for our own sins, but sometimes we have to identify with the sins of our people. This was made very real to me years ago. I was on a Youth with a Mission outreach to Cordoba um, in Argentina. And can you put up Nehemiah, sorry, Daniel, Daniel 9.20. Daniel, just prior to this, he confessed his sin and the sins of his people. Now, you can't repent for others, but there's something about acknowledging, Lord, we have turned from you. So I was on this art, outreach in Argentina, and the Argentine people are a very proud people. They are come from a European descent mainly, which is different than most of the other nations in South America. And so they sort of look down their noses at others, and, and uh, we were there, 300 of us, trying to share the gospel, and people would not listen to us. It's like, who are you foreigners coming in here to tell us what we should think or believe? And so we were going, Lord, what should we do? And we had three leaders of our outreach. I was, I was not one of the leaders. Um, guys called Wickneys and John Dawson and, and Dean Sherman. And they said, we feel like the Lord wants us to go to the city plaza tomorrow morning and get on our knees and confess our own sins, any sins that we have toward God, and then confess 
the pride and the prejudice of the Argentine people. And I wish someone had recorded this because I haven't come across a recording, but the next day, it was like a veil was pulled off and people were stopping to listen to us share the gospel. People were coming to Christ. It was night and day. It was unbelievable simply because we confessed our sin and the sins of the people. And so before I hand this back to, to you, Reagan, I just want to ask if we could do something. Um, if you're able to, you might not be physically able to kneel, but could we just kneel before God? I, I grew up in the Anglican church and Anglicans and Lutherans and Presbyterians get a lot more exercise than the average Pentecostal church because we're kneeling and standing all the time, you know. But, um, but, you know, people kneel for a lot of reasons, right, right now. But the main reason we kneel is to humble ourselves before God. And so could we just kneel before Him and I just want to lead us in prayer. Lord, You know that in this land, in this, on this ground in which we stand. We, we deserve your judgment. We know too much. We've gone our own way. We've fallen away from you. And God, we deserve judgment, but God, we know that you're a merciful God and you're gracious and you're faithful and you're just and you're good. And Lord, we just wanna ask you, would you have mercy on us? Would you give us another chance? Lord, would you, even if it takes some degree of calamity, but would you bring revival again to this land that, that millions would come to you like in the days of Charles Finney and, 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 and others, Lord, who, who saw an outpouring of your Spirit. Oh, we long to see that. We don't deserve it, but we, we remind you, Lord, that you say that even when we're faithless, you're faithful. And so based on your character, Lord, we pray. We pray for America. Lord, we pray for, for this state of Georgia and this city of Augusta and Grovetown and this, this area. Lord, would you pour out your Spirit again because of who you are, we ask. In Jesus' name.